I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blackened my husband's eye. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find. And here's what he dredged up from the subconscious mind. When I was one, my mummy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I never mean what I say. At three, I had a feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally I poisoned all my lovers. But I am happy now I've learned the lesson this is taught. Everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. It's uh, called Psychiatric Folk Song by someone called Anna Russell. It's obviously tongue-in-cheek, but I wonder if it's onto something. See, our world really doesn't know what to do with feelings of, of shame and guilt over wrongdoing. It doesn't even like the word sin. On the one hand, it denies they really exist and wants to explain them all away. But on the other hand, well, people in our world still really wrestle with these feelings of shame and guilt. And the world can't offer any real solutions, can it? Now, that might be the case with the world, but that can't be the case with followers of Jesus. Because you know that right at the start of the Christian life is admitting sin, isn't it? Confessing sin, repenting of sin. And ongoing in the Christian life has also got to be this regular, humble confession and repentance. I'm not sure if you're aware, but arguably the one sentence that kicked off the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century is this one. And for you history buffs, it's thesis number one of Luther's 95 Theses. What did Luther write? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Right, knowing what to do when we sin is not an optional extra in the Christian life. One can argue it is the Christian life. Now, for some of you, not knowing what to do with that, feelings of guilt and shame, has actually crippled your lives, your spiritual health, and even your mental health. For others, not practicing biblical repentance over sin has actually meant that you're stuck in certain sins that you just can't gain victory over. Or you've left a trail of broken relationships behind you that haven't ever been reconciled properly. Well, no matter what, I suspect that for all of us, what God has to say to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 about real sorrow and real repentance is going to be life-changing. So let's pray and get into it. Father God, we pray that as we dip into this passage, it has so much to say about genuine sorrow, godly sorrow, godly repentance, that you will help us lead lives that are marked every day by genuine repentance to you and to all those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we get into the main points, just a quick reminder of the context of our passage, right? This chapter, chapter 7, actually finishes off what's a little bit over the first half of the letter, right? Uh, Paul, the writer of 2 Corinthians, actually started way back in chapter 1, you'll remember, talking about his sorrows, his distresses in his ministry. And these sorrows and distresses have a lot to do with the very church that he's writing to, because his relationship with them had become very strained. So during his last visit to them in person, he left after that visit feeling attacked and humiliated and, and deeply hurt and rejected. 
Now, some major conflict happened. We don't know exactly what it might have been, but it, it probably at least involved some sin that someone had committed in the church. And Paul called out that sin. But rather than deal with it and deal with the guilty person, the church either sided with the guilty person or just left it unresolved. And so Paul left Corinth upset, distressed, deeply hurt. Now, after he leaves, he writes a letter to them. We don't have a copy of that letter anymore, but he refers to it here. And this letter was blunt and direct and very clear about what was at stake. You see, this wasn't just a personal thing between him and the church. It was ultimately between them and God. Because if you leave sin unresolved and undealt with in your midst, that's a danger. That's a spiritual danger. But after he sends that letter, Paul, well, he's in turmoil. I mean, He's anxious about how they would respond. I mean, would they reject his rebuke and put up even more walls? Or maybe perhaps he hopes that they would see their fault and finally repent and change. Well, in his state of anxiety, Paul sends Titus, his co-worker, to Corinth to find out on his behalf. And so he waits and waits and waits for news. He, he waits for Titus's return. Now, earlier when we read chapter 7, we won't read it again, but Paul, did you see that gives a window into how he felt, his emotions as he waited for Titus. He, his weight was full of anxiety, full of fears, because he cares so much about them. Right? He, he was torn up inside, deeply torn up, distressed as, at how they might have responded to his letter. Well, eventually, however, Titus does arrive and, and he brings good news from the Corinthians. So these, these, these people that Paul loved so dearly, well, they had realized after his letter that, that they were in the wrong and they repented and they acted quickly to fix what went wrong. They disciplined the guilty person. We'll, we saw that back in chapter two. And they also helped to refresh Titus and sent him back with this good news to Paul. And so we see these things, don't we, in chapter 7, we read it before, both at the beginning and at the end of this chapter, you see Paul enormously relieved, he's comforted by Titus, by the good news he brought, and by how happy Titus was, having been um, received and welcomed and refreshed by the Corinthians. So that's the context. But where I want us to zero in today is that bit in the middle, right? verses 8 to 13, because it's there that we learn about why Paul was most comforted and most encouraged. And it's all got to do with how they responded, how the Corinthians were properly able to move from sorrow over their wrongdoing to genuine godly repentance and change. And that is absolutely vital, isn't it, for followers of Jesus to get right. And that's where it speaks to us, particularly today. So let's read again from verse 8. Even if I caused you distress by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now verse 10 there is key, isn't it? You see there, Paul contrasts Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And getting this right is absolutely crucial because they can look very similar to each other, right? Godly sorrow over sin or godly guilt can look a lot like worldly sorrow over sin or worldly guilt. But you can't have genuine, life-changing, God-forgiving repentance without 
godly sorrow. So we've got to get this right. Now, there are three ways we see here what godly sorrow looks like. We see it in the example of the Corinthians and we want to apply it to our lives. So here are my three points. Number one, godly sorrow is appropriate. Godly sorrow is appropriate. Remember, Paul had just written a hard, direct letter of rebuke. He knew it would have wounded them. I mean, who likes to have their wrongs pointed out? But look again at verse 8. He, doesn't, he says there that he doesn't regret writing it, does he? Because verse 9, your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful, sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. So you see there, don't you? There is such a thing as appropriate sorrow. There is such a thing as the sorrow that God intends. And godly sorrow is always appropriate to the circumstances. So in the case of the Corinthians, a real sin had been committed. And the church's failure to discipline it was a serious fault. The sorrow that Paul's letter caused was quite appropriate to the circumstances. So he doesn't regret causing that kind of sorrow. You see, there is such a thing, isn't there, as real guilt. And when we fail to live under God's rule as God created us to live, when we hurt Him, when we hurt others, we are guilty before God. And this guilt has very little little to do with how we feel. I mean, it's objective, not subjective. You get it? We are guilty whether or not we feel it. That's objective. Now, when we realize that we're really guilty objectively, it's then really appropriate, isn't it, to subjectively feel the guilt or the sorrow over that or even shame. That's appropriate sorrow. That is good sorrow, godly sorrow, which will lead to repentance. But there is also sorrow that's inappropriate. Now, those among you who especially struggle with self-doubt with anxiety, with maybe mental illness, you may unknowingly battle inappropriate guilt. And you know what this feels like, right? You, you may often feel guilt and shame about things that you didn't do or sins you didn't commit, or you feel guilty about something that's been totally exaggerated out of proportion. And so it's important for us to draw that distinction between appropriate and inappropriate sorrow, because we may feel lots of guilt, but it may not be godly sorrow. It may be totally inappropriate. So how do we know? Well, when you and I feel guilty, the, the first question we should ask ourselves is, what exactly am I guilty of? What have I actually done? And how serious is it? Is it? What I mean is, we should always be suspicious of vague on feelings of unworthiness, right? Because you know what? The Holy Spirit who is in us to convict us of sin is never vague. Like if he wants to convict us of a sin, it will be specific, identifiable acts, words, thoughts. It'll be a sin that you can put a name to and probably put a date to as well. Because you see, friends, vague and ill-defined feelings of failure are much more likely to be the devil's territory than the Holy Spirit's. Like the devil wants to keep us demoralized. You know, Satan, the, the name word Satan just means accuser. We'll see that in Job coming up. And that's often why you and I feel guilty even after we've received genuine forgiveness from God over past sins. See, Satan does not want you to ever shake off the feelings of guilt and claim the forgiveness that's truly ours in Jesus. 
So if you're a person here who really struggles with general, constant, but vague feelings of guilt and unworthiness, you'll be careful, won't you? As God wants us to experience only appropriate godly sorrow, right? sorrow that's not tied to vague feelings of unworthiness. You got that? Okay, that's my first point. My second point about godly sorrow, godly sorrow is always God-directed. Now come with me again to that key verse, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Okay, what's translated there is godly sorrow is literally according to God's sorrow. According to God's sorrow. In other words, it's God-focused, God-directed sorrow. Do you remember when King David, the most beloved and special king chosen by God in the Old Testament, do you remember when he committed murder and adultery? Well, in Psalm 51, he writes there his confession. And there's a pretty good example of godly sorrow. Let me just, let's have a look at the first four verses there. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now I want you to notice again that last verse in Psalm 51. It's not that David's saying that he didn't sin against the man he arranged murdered or the man's wife he forced into adultery. Of course he knows he sinned against them. But His sorrow over sin was primarily and first and foremost, you see, God-directed, Godward. He knew that all sin is ultimately sin against, against the Creator. And so it's to God that He brings His sorrow and His guilt and His confession. That's godly sorrow. And so I hope you begin to see how worldly sorrow might be different, right? I mean, worldly sorrow then is primarily... It's not God-directed, it's self-directed, self-centered, self-focused. Now, again, I want to say it's very easy for us to get the two mixed up because worldly sorrow masquerades often as godly sorrow. Sometimes it's pretty hard to tell. That line between genuine sorrow over sin versus feeling sorry for ourselves, it's not always clear. But I reckon there are at least three common signs that it might be worldly sorrow rather than godly sorrow. Let me just give them to you quickly. Number one. Worldly sorrow is sorry about the consequences of our sin, but not about the actual sin. Right? You got that? It's, it's, it's sorry about the consequences, but not the actual sin. Often my kids are like this. They're upset because they don't like the punishment. But are they really upset or sorrowful for the hurt they've caused or the wrong they've done? Not necessarily. Number two, worldly sorrow likes to make excuses for sin. Right? Worldly sorrow doesn't say sorry without a but. It's always sorry, but. Or, or, or you hear sometimes when uh, famous people do the wrong thing, they say things like, this is, not at, like or, this is not like me at all. You know. Now, you and I both know that any sorry that's followed by a but really invalidates the sorry. It's very hard to receive a sorry but, isn't it? Okay. Thirdly, worldly sorrow, well, it's often just self-pity. 
And so this is the internal dialogue you have. I've let myself down. I failed my standards. How could I do that? I'm so hopeless. I don't deserve to be loved. Now let's admit all of these things. We've all struggled with it, haven't we? But here's the thing. This kind of sorrow, worldly sorrow, though it sometimes looks a lot like godly sorrow, but this kind of thing will never offer hope on the other side. And that's why Paul says there very clearly the worldly sorrow actually brings death. Now you want to see an example of that. See Judas Iscariot, Jesus' disciple. He committed the ultimate betrayal, didn't he? For 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed his Lord and Master on the night before Jesus died. Now, what did he do afterwards? He was overwhelmed with sorrow. But what, what kind of sorrow was it? It was worldly sorrow. The sorrow that ended in death, quite literally, for Judas. Because you see, Judas's sorrow, like all worldly sorrow, was ultimately self-centered, self-pitying. It was self-centered sorrow. And it's always going to end up as hopeless sorrow. Because if there's real guilt, right? Real guilt of over real sin that you've committed, then no amount of therapy can make it go away. And there's just no way that when you look into yourself, that that can never make it go away, can it? Uh, For those of you who remember doing Shakespeare, uh, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, remember? She's conscience-stricken, pacing the floor over what she's done because of real guilt, over the murder that she committed. Now, what she needs to hear, what we need to hear when we have real guilt, is the words that we can never say to ourselves, is it? And these words are, your sins are forgiven you. That's what we need to hear. Your sins are forgiven And only God can say that. Only God can say that. Only God can forgive sins. And that's why only godly sorrow, God-centered, God-directed sorrow can ever result in hope. And that's why Paul can say that godly sorrow leads to salvation, also in verse 10. And so you see, if Judas is the classic example of worldly sorrow bringing death, then the classic example of godly sorrow that brings salvation has got to be, well, another disciple of Jesus, Peter. I mean, like Judas, Peter also failed dreadfully, didn't he? The night uh, before Jesus was crucified, he denies his master not once, not twice, three times. Now, you'd think that if Peter's sorrow was like Judas's, being centered around himself, he probably would have ended up like Judas. But we know that that's not where Peter's story ended. Because he dared to believe that though he was a failure, he still had hope. And this hope was what? It was God-directed. It rested on God's grace, God's generous forgiveness. And so like wings on a dove, this grace lifted Peter out of his pit of despair. And his godly sorrow became a doorway to salvation and a new start. And so godly sorrow, the sorrow that results in salvation and not death, it's got to always focus and be directed on God and not ourselves. So if today you're listening and you're feeling weighed down with a sense of guilt. And we're talking about real guilt, appropriate guilt, appropriate guilt over something you've actually done. Please look to Jesus because he bore your sins in your place on the cross and paid it all once and for all. Don't look to yourself in self-pity. Look to Jesus, cling to him, trust in him, find in the cross real forgiveness, real salvation and real hope. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you've never experienced real, genuine forgiveness of sins, this power to actually cleanse, wipe your conscience of the most weighty guilt and shame, no matter what you've done. If you've not experienced this, then you are invited right now by Jesus, right now, to come to Him. 
And we'd love to help you do that. So please connect with us with the link that I'm going to show you right now. All right. My third point. Third point about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow always takes action. Now, what's that action? Well, that action is repent, to repent. Now, you've got to know the word repent is actually not just a state of mind, is it? It's not the same as feeling guilty or sorry, though that may lead to repentance, but it's not the same thing. To repent isn't even just to confess your sin. No, no. The word repentance means doing a life U-turn. Doing a U-turn. It's like you're driving the one down a one-way street the wrong way, and you know it's now it's the wrong way, and you need to turn around, do a U-turn. And so repentance, you see, involves the mind, the head. You've got to decide to turn around. But it also involves actions, involves the hands. You've actually got to do something about it. You've actually got to physically turn around. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance, therefore, must be action-based. Because you see, there is such a thing as, thing as fake repentance. There is such a thing as insincere repentance, isn't there? I'll give you another example. You remember the story of Moses and the Pharaoh in Exodus? That's a prime example of superficial and insincere sorrow. I mean, Moses, you remember, performs the plague. Pharaoh would say sorry, so the plague would stop. And then he changed his mind like three seconds later. And then there is a repeat itself time and time again. Now, that's got a name. It's called crisis repentance. Crisis repentance, not real repentance. Though. People only pretend to feel sorry for their sins in an attempt to get God on their side because it's an emergency. You can probably think of friends who seem to really get interested in spiritual things when disaster strikes, only to turn around and have nothing to do with God once the crisis is over. It's not real repentance, is it? That's called crisis repentance. Then sometimes there's what's called ritual repentance. Ritual repentance, right? Confessing sin to God is just like a habit. It's a routine, like going to the shops. And it's performed just as thoughtlessly and superficially. So you sin, you confess to God. There's no real God-directed sorrow over it. There's no real repentance. No real action is taken. And so you just go round and round and round in that circle again and again, and nothing ever changes. Now, you and I may be guilty of that too. I know that sometimes I have the attitude of, well, sin is like a credit card, Right? Credit card, you buy now, you pay later. Sin, you sin now, you pray later. And then it takes a ritual prayer to make it all go away. It's no big deal. Now that's not real repentance either. Neither crisis repentance nor ritual repentance is real repentance. That's not the kind of sorrow that Paul talks about here. It's not godly. See, for the Corinthians, their sorrow resulted in real repentance. Real solid actions came out of them having felt sorry, appropriate godly sorrow for what they'd done, that resulted in real action. So come back with me um, to the passage. Let's have a look again at verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Now there, did you notice Paul lists seven ways that he could see this godly sorrow result in real repentance in the Corinthians? So let me just point out some of them. Uh, Firstly, earnestness. Earnestness. That word earnestness has an energy to it, doesn't it? It's not just sitting there helplessly shrugging our shoulders, feeling sorry for ourselves. No, no, no. There's earnestness to do something about it. Godly sorrow produces such an energy. And then there Paul speaks of this eagerness to clear yourselves. You see, the Corinthians... Their earnestness made them keen to make up for their failure 
and they would do anything they could to make up for him. Uh, there's indignation there too. That's not indignation against Paul, but indignation against the offender whose sin that they had ignored, but now they needed to do something about. And then there's alarm, or literally fear. <laughs> they, they were so aware of the seriousness of their situation, the possibility of God's judgment, if they were to still be stuck in this sin, that they were alarmed, they were fearful, right fear of God. And then, of course, there's readiness to see justice done. Now, back in chapter 2, verse 6, you might remember, Paul refers to the fact that they actually did publicly rebuke the offender. They dealt with it. Justice was done. They responded out of their godly sorrow and carried out what they failed to carry out last time. And because this action had been taken, Paul could say in verse 11 at the end, at every point you've proved yourself innocent. That's you've been exonerated. Right? You've done the right thing. Okay, friends, that's precisely the kind of active and practical response that characterizes real repentance. Remember Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus, the tax collector. I mean, the man who spent his whole life getting rich by ripping off his fellow countrymen. What did he do when he met the Lord Jesus? Luke quotes him as saying, he says, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, I am sure there was quite a queue at his door that day of people wanting their money. But boy, what an example of genuine repentance. And here's where the rubber really hits the road for us, right? You see, if we're feeling guilty about something and it's appropriate guilt, appropriate sorrow, and our sorrow directs us to God to ask him for forgiveness, then we can't just stop there, can we? Our repentance is not just an emotional response. It's a practical one. It's an act. We must get up and do something about it. And that's what I find hardest to do. Because it means that if I've wronged someone, saying sorry to God is not enough. I've got to actually say sorry to the person I've wronged. And if possible, to try to make things right. Try to fix what can be fixed, even if it costs me. And it means that if I feel sorry for some personal sin that I've committed, and saying sorry to God isn't enough, I actually got to take steps to develop good habits towards change. Like if I'm really sorry about anger, ungodly anger, then I've got to take steps to address why it is that I fly into a rage. Like what, what are my triggers? No excuses. I've got to understand why I do this. What lies deep inside things that I might need to really deal with, with God. Or if I'm really sorry about lust and sexual sin, then I've got to be accountable and careful about the time I spend with my boyfriend or girlfriend or the person I'm not married to, about what I watch and look on online. I've got to take radical steps, even if it means cutting off relationships, even means taking a break, even if it means having software installed on my computer so that I'm accountable to someone else who'll look at what things I've browsed. If I'm really sorry about greed and materialism, then I got to work out how to increase my generosity to others, how to limit my spending on myself and be accountable for that. Right? That's what godly sorrow must look like. It has to result in actions, practical expressions of repentance. See, good intentions are not good enough, are they? As the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. No, instead, godly sorrow will point us to the sin that the Holy Spirit has exposed 
It will turn us towards God for forgiveness, but it will also give birth to solid actions that show our repentance. Now, we've been journeying through 2 Corinthians for a couple of months now, and we're actually about to take a break and go into the book of Job starting next week. And if you followed with us through this series, you'll know that the, the Corinthians are a pretty messed up bunch, right? There's not much that you'd want to follow in their example. However, here though, in chapter 7, here's one place where they did do something right. They got sorrow and repentance exactly right. And I want to say that if we get this right ourselves, as individuals, as families, as a church, as nations, if we get this right, repentance right, this is tremendously powerful. I mean, can you imagine? Imagine if you, in all your relationships, Practice godly sorrow, genuine repentance. Like, can you imagine if in your homes, as spouses, as parents, as children, you knew how to confess wrongs when they're committed. You knew how to apologize properly. You knew how to repent and give and receive forgiveness. Can you imagine how different church relationships would be if we really got this? How those very things that I know are keeping some of you from each other. Right? Grudges, unresolved conflicts, hurts. Imagine how different things would be in our church, any church, if confession and repentance and reconciliations were done properly. Or in our world, what could have been so different, I imagine, in recent events highlighted by the Black Lives Matter protests? What could have been so different if, for example, we Australians, when we said sorry as a nation over our treatment of Indigenous Australians, what if our sorry was actually accompanied with real sorrow, national confession and national repentance and actual actions? Would things still be in the same state as it is now? As I said, godly repentance is at the heart of the gospel. You get it right and you will begin to see how incredibly powerful it is. Let's pray. Father God, we think to all the times in history when you have stirred communal, corporate, even national repentance, and that has been part of or led to revivals. Father, please stir in us, starting from us personally, but in our church, in our nation, in our world, in our city, real godly repentance. We long to see relationships healed. We long to see forgiveness and freedom in our relationship with you, and we long to see revival come in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, I've got a bit of time for discussion, so have a think about this. Where in your life do you perhaps see ungodly sorrow and incomplete repentance? What steps can you take today to repent of that? Right. In other words, Do you need to repent of your repentance, right? What in your life do you see ungodly sorrow, incomplete repentance? What steps can you take today to repent of that? All right, it's enough from me today. Uh, Thank you for joining us and we will see you again very soon. Bye.